Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, welcome and happy Saturday night to everyone. Welcome to All the Things. This is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and I'm excited to be here. My friend, companion, uh, Monique Dusan, is away in Alaska. We'll see some pictures in just a minute, but uh, helping me on the show tonight and every night and every day, my best friend and dearest life companion, my husband, Bob Bontrager. There he is, <laughs> professional button pusher. Oh. oh, that's okay. And we are live. So I want to invite you to join the conversation. We'd love to have you add your voice in the chat box. Now, the best way to do that is on YouTube. It's the easiest. Facebook is a little more clunky. Usually Facebook doesn't show us a lot of the comments until after we sign off on the show. But you can try there as well. Bob tries to watch those for us. And so uh, let's go out and check on YouTube, see who's watching tonight on the stream. Glad to have Jennifer Bytel there helping to moderate. Oh, I got a lot of moderators tonight. Laura's there. Allison's there. Very good. Um, Hey, Candy. Glad to see you here. Jessica from East Tennessee, Jermaine. Welcome. Hello from Atlanta, Georgia. Perfect fall weather here. We're going to be in Georgia very soon. I think week after next. Looking forward to that. So, hey, Tracy. So glad to see the family gathering around tonight. That's awesome. Sure. Let's see what's happening at Facebook. Beth Davis from East Texas. And my other moderator is Alicia Moss. Hello, Alicia. Thank you for helping. It says you're an anniversary follower. I wonder what that means. That sounds very official, Alicia. Hey, Laura Powell. Glad you're here. You have a fan in Laura Powell, I think, Bob. (laughs) Yeah, Christine Boone from South Jersey. Glad to see everybody tonight. It's going to be a great show. Um, If you want to support the show and help us out and help us overcome big tech and all of its shenanigans, the best way to do that is to uh, hit the thumbs up and share the show, make a comment. All of these things help to alert the bots that you find value in our content and uh, help pushing it out. Now, if you don't feel comfortable with sharing it publicly on your feed, I know a lot of people feel nervous about that. Just send it to a couple of friends. Send the link to a couple of friends that you think uh, could benefit and will be interested in this content. And I'm going to tell you time and time again, the, the number one way that people find the ministry is because a friend shared content with them. And um, so that is a way of bringing hope and uh, encouragement to others that may feel very alone. I think that the feelings of loneliness and isolation is probably one of the most common comments that we get um, of how people felt before they found the ministry. So invite someone to come join the family. Uh, This show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, 
the Theology Mom podcast, which, by the way, I'm going to have a new stream on Monday night, and Family 210 Clothing. So we're featuring our Created to Rain design tonight. Also, Monique's favorite, Speak Truth to Error. So you can just go to family210.com and uh, Truth Has No Color, another one of Monique's favorites. And you can check out the merch there. And $10 of uh, each purchase goes to help the ministry. Okay, like I said a moment ago, Monique is in Alaska. And so when I'm not there to help with social media pictures, we get things like this. (laughs) Pictures of moose. So she's in Fairbanks. She was very excited to see the moose. They were hanging around in the downtown. There they are. I think she was probably hoping to get some moose, moose meat. She did get some reindeer steaks. She was very excited about that. Monique likes a good exotic meat. (laughs) There's the moose. All right. And she was meeting with some of the family there. Looks like she's all mic'd up and ready to go. She's been doing some talks up there at a church in Fairbanks. So it was a lot of fun. There's our table. Hopefully she found an iron. (laughs) Because that... That uh, thing's a little wrinkled there, but um, she's up there with Thaddeus Williams. So he brought some books and uh, they're doing some speaking together. That's been a lot of fun. I talked to her on the phone today. She said her and Thaddeus are a good team uh, and having a good time uh, doing a conference together. So I did not have to go on the long plane ride to Alaska. But I know people were very grateful to have her there and be able to meet her um, in person. So it's a lot of fun. And she's hoping to make one more attempt tonight to go see the Northern Lights. She's already made one attempt, but it was cloudy. So tonight, hopefully it all works out and she'll get some pictures of that. Okay, let's get into our topic for tonight. I'm super excited to talk about this because one of the most common questions that I'm getting while I'm out on the road right now, um, as Monique and I have been traveling and speaking a lot this fall, um, is Christian parents coming up to me and saying, what in the world is going on at Christian colleges? Um, Are they being penetrated by critical race theory? Critical race theory is all over the news, all over the media, and Christian parents are very confused. They, They want to know, you know, some, some, some skills on how to vet a school. And I keep finding myself answering this question over and over. And it's a very complicated answer. I thought it'd be good to do a podcast about this. And then I saw an article this week in First Things. And I meant to send that to Bob ahead of time, but I forgot. But if you go to firstthings.com, there's an article this week that appeared called Woke Theory at evangelical colleges and it was mostly focusing on what's happening at Baylor but I thought to myself wow at least somebody is finally talking about this it's an article by Gerald McDermott I think and um, it was really one of the first articles that I've seen where somebody is publicly saying and, and calling attention to this issue of what's happening at evangelical colleges. And so I thought, you know what? I really want to do a show about this this weekend. There it is. Thank you, Bob. 
he's he's so magical the way he does that um and so this this is a this is a kind of an interesting piece and really the first thing i've seen uh, trying to highlight this issue and so i wanted to do a show about it reached out to somebody that we're going to have on on the show tonight for help and um an acquaintance of mine and um she's going to help kind of break things down for for us a bit but then this morning i saw a second article it was in the washington post about cornerstone university has a new president and this president is actually engaging in a project of cleaning house um based on uh getting rid of some of its staff who adhere to um the policies of of diversity equity and inclusion so a little bit more traction a little bit more visibility about this issue happening just this week so it's a very timely topic for us to be talking about so i'm going to introduce our special guest here to help me talk about this uh we're going to call her joy that's not her her real name but um in order to help protect her and uh, she's still actively employed um at a prominent christian university so i'm going to welcome her on here Well, it's all right. Now they can hear you. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to be here tonight. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you here. And, you know, we've had some dialogue over the months. I think we first spoke a year or so ago and um, you were sharing with us some of your experiences. So maybe let's start off there with giving us a little snapshot about your background in Christian higher ed. Okay, well, I have been in Christian higher education for 20 years at three different Christian institutions. Um, I served as academic dean for seven years at, say, institutions A and B. And then I served at the executive level on the president's cabinet at two institutions, uh, institutions B and C. And uh, the disciplines that I teach are in business and leadership. I stepped back from the executive level um, to have a family. So now I'm serving as associate dean. Very good. And so you've served at multiple uh, Christian institutions and you are in leadership currently in, in administration. So um, you're coming at the conversation more from the, the insider in working in, in academia. I'm kind of more of the outsider in the conversation I've worked around the edges of academia for a long time. I was a professor for a few years in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, but in I've never been tenured or, or anything like that. But my recent experience, and I'm going to share kind of for the first time publicly tonight, is just giving everyone a little snapshot of my come from as a parent of sending a child to a Christian university. In 2017, uh, my husband and I sent our daughter to Biola University. We're a three-generation Biola family. Um, my husband and I literally saved money every single month since the birth of our children in order to be able to send them to Biola. Uh, we wanted them to have the same awesome and amazing experience that we both had. Uh, my husband's sister, 
went there. Our brother-in-law went there. My husband's parents went there. And, you know, this was part of our family DNA. And to be honest, I'd never heard of critical theory. I'd never heard of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I didn't know anything about those issues. I just knew that Biola was a solid school. I looked at their doctrinal statement. I knew a lot of their profs. They were solid. Um, and I thought, you know, everything, all the messaging to the parents is about how biblically faithful the school is. And, and I said, great, here's 30,000 of our hard earned dollars. And we sent our daughter there. And then um, fast forward to March of 2020, during the pandemic, our daughter came home and it started clicking for me um, that something there was concerning things for her that were happening. And I'm not going to share any details related to that because that's my daughter's story to tell. But what I started doing was watching Biola chapels, looking at their website more closely, looking at people's social media accounts. But mostly what I started to do was talking to people, interviewing deans, um, profs, students, parents, former students, former parents, former faculty, former administrators, and really started to get a pretty good picture of what was happening. And then you and I talked, Joy, and I started seeing like, wow, this is all kind of fitting together. Like what I was seeing was not weird or anomalous or unique. Um, my daughter was being taught critical theory by her professors in a positive way that she should be accepting it. And in a moment of honesty, I'll just say I felt duped. I felt betrayed. I felt angry. And so, um, yeah, that's so I'm coming at the conversation from the point of view of the parent and hoping to represent some of those parents who might be watching. Um, and I'm curious in your role in in Christian Academia Joy, like, why do you think parents send their children to Christian University? I know why. My husband and I did, but I'm curious, based on your experience, why do you think parents do that? Um, I think that most administrators and faculty understand that parents are looking for a safe space to transition their child from their parental protective care and perspectives to a place where they can interact with other strong Christians who have other strong Christian perspectives um, but giving them that opportunity to experience other theological perspectives or cultural lenses, but still within a biblical framework. Um, they're taking that God-directed responsibility and, and handing it off at that moment to people that they believe are safe and will mentor them into the next phase of life. Boy, that's almost word for word a conversation my husband and I had. Um, I think maybe it was probably our daughter's between our daughter's junior and senior year. I remember driving, we were in the car driving on the Oregon coast and we were having that very conversation. Why would we want to send our daughter to, to a Christian school? And it was really that very thing is we saw that as a continuation of our values. We saw that as being a place where she could grow spiritually and emotionally, but have input and coaching that would reflect our worldview and our values. And that's why we were willing to, to pay. Um, now, 
one of the things that's coming up for my conversations with parents is they say, well, what do I look for in a Christian college? Like I went on the website. It didn't say anything about critical race theory on the website. Um, and I think that's an important point. Like Christian colleges are not in this day and age going to post right on their website. We teach critical race theory. Like that's, we're going to have to be a little more, um, little more smart about how we look into this. So maybe you can give us some thoughts about how to detect, you know, what's happening behind the scenes in the Christian, in the, in the culture of the Christian college. Yeah, it's definitely not going to be labeled CRT. Of course, uh, I mean, I didn't even know the term CRT until I stumbled upon the Center for Biblical Unity 15 months ago through Natasha Crane's blog post that went viral. Um, so in, in Christian higher education, it's been positioned as a student development originally, I would think, and discussed in terms like intercultural programming, community support, campus unity efforts. And that's where it, it really has been until recently, is just creating a, a good community setting for our students who live here and interact here in this community. So do you think that in the beginning, there was kind of a thought of maybe like a good type of diversity of how can we engage in recruiting more international students? How can we help students that come from different cultural backgrounds to feel more comfortable? Like maybe in the beginning, that's what it was like. Cause I talked to a former provost at a top five Christian university a while back. And he said that in his experience, that was kind of how it started. I'm wondering if that, um, kind of aligns with your experience as well. Absolutely. Yes. A big push in the early 2000s on international students. And then you you get students here who live in different countries and you have to support them. You're not just supporting them during school hours, but you you are their only place to go on a break weekend or Thanksgiving weekend. Um, you're their community support. That You're the one who needs to go there when they're hospitalized. Um, and, and then the desire to grow. I think um, institutions have a mission to serve um, people and to serve students who may not otherwise be served as part of the mission of Christian higher education. And so diversity analyses of the current student population told them that we have these different kinds of students, um, focus groups with those students. How do we do, uh, attract more diversity in the student population? Uh, not just not solely because we want to grow as an institution, but because it's good for us as an institution. It's good for us to have different students learning together. And, and I just want to emphasize that the leaders' hearts were in the right place with that, the mission centrality of their institutions to serve students who need a higher education in a Christian environment. So this diversity analysis of, of student populations back in the early 2000s, um, that would have been like, how do we attract, I'm imagining that that involves, how do we attract, you know, more people from different demographics than we're attracting right now? How do we broaden our student base? Um, how do we broaden even international students and attract them? So 
that's a good thing. I mean, we want to make Christian higher ed available to as many Christians as possible. And so I'm thinking that those kinds of adjustments would have been about enrollment growth um, and, and that sort of a thing, which in and of itself, I would think like, that's not a bad thing. That's almost like being a good missionary. Yes. Yes. This is what the, the institutions are created to do is to create people who will go change the world. And um, so giving, giving people who are going to, to graduate and go into different areas of ministry and areas of business and, and be influencers for the kingdom of, of God. And I, so I, the, their hearts are in the right places, they're doing the right things, and they're doing them for the right reasons. It's just that presidents and leaders didn't know what to do with the diverse populations that, that came to those institutions, and they needed information. And I think what happened is they started recommending resources to each other and you know, just trying to find out what can I do? How can I learn more about this? And so the resources that were already out there and were already published are the ones that they use, the ones that they recommended to each other, the ones that they started talking about, and the ones that therefore have shaped the culture of higher education. So when those resources started to be shared with each other and these, these Christian higher ed um, leaders started collaborating, what kinds of resources were they sharing? Were they like just kind of looking around at the literature of what's available? Oh, we want more diversity. Here's books on diversity, not really understanding maybe at the time, like a distinctly Christian vision for diversity and how that was different than what was floating around in broader academia. I mean, help me help kind of paint that picture a little bit. Yes. So of course, in Christian higher education, our, our leadership is mostly uh, white. It is mostly male. And so these are people who are thinking, I, I don't know what to do and I want to be open and I want to serve people who are not like me. And so they're looking for literature, as you said, that's been written um, at, on the topic from, from everything from an academic standpoint to what is purporting to be theo theological standpoint um, and, and putting together lists and sharing those lists on listservs, on distribution lists, you know, that they, they do that. They, they send out distribution lists of summer reading lists of what, you know, the chief academic officers are reading or what they're giving their faculty to read or what presidents are reading. And um, this is what shapes the conversations then going forward. So what were some of the other strategies that were implemented by many of these Christian colleges besides sharing, you know, sharing papers, sharing books? What mm -hmm. else did they do to try to help with diversity? Well, what I saw most commonly is that they, they hired a, a person for a diversity effort. This was usually called intercultural um, programming. It usually came out of student development. And in most cases, and lots and lots of cases, this was uh, to hire a recently graduated, usually African-American male who had been significantly involved in student development leadership. 
And so the thought process was he loves the institution. He understands the institution. He'll help other students connect in their activities and living situations. So they'll also love the institution like he does. Again, this is the right goal. They wanted students to connect and feel that they belonged in the institution. Um, but these recent graduates were untrained. They were in over their heads. They're, they had no background in say theology, except for some classes that they took in their bachelor's program. They had no experience in conflict resolution. And what they did is they brought their family and community perspective and definitions to the topic. Um, not, it wasn't academic. They didn't have an agenda. They weren't trying to push CRT as an academic agenda. They were just describing what their culture and their experiences led them to understand and believe. And so thinking about how hard it is for us as adults and parents to engage on these topics, but these topics were thrown to say a 22 year old to mitigate the emotions between people who are essentially their peers and then a handful or even a cabinet full of 40, 50, 60 year old white men. And I just wanna take a moment to bless their young idealistic hearts for trying to, to stand in the gap and do something that, that was just way over their heads. I think that's a really important point because I think that, you know, our goal here is not to throw anyone under the bus. It's just to try to understand like, how did we arrive here? Yeah. And, you know, I think you're really giving us some insight into the process from the early and, and mid 2000s as to, you know, what has happened. And I think one of the more interesting things that you brought up in the conversation we had about a year ago was the shifts that have happened in about the last 10 years or so um, with the implementation not just of general diversity of how do we how do we diversify our student population with student recruiting, but now there's been shifts of how do the principles of not just diversity but diversity, equity, and inclusion, often called DEI, um, how that's changed over the last ten years, where it's become more embedded in what I call the, the policies and the hiring practices of Christian universities. So maybe talk to us about what you saw about 10 years ago and how it started changing. Yes. So what I just described would be 10, about 10 years ago or, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. I, what's changing now is the formalization of what people know and what they're putting into place. So the systematization of resources is a big one. So the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities is CCCU, and it is the organization that provides collaboration and research for the evangelical Christian and uh, universities and colleges across the country and some even across the world. They started hosting diversity conferences now called diversity and inclusion that allowed people who were focusing on these issues at their institution to come together and collaborate formally. In February of this year, they launched a resource database um, at diversity.cccu.org. And it provides selected resources uh, from 
like public resources as well as resources from institutions. So they have compiled websites and resources of 47 different institutions. And if, you, if you're interested in what an institution's perspective might be on these issues, I would suggest going there and seeing if they have a, a direct link to that area of the institution's website. Um, so, so bringing together all of these resources uh, in a database, a formalized database system. Yeah, Bob's going to put that up on the screen here for everyone so they can see what this resource is. And again, tell us what this is from again, because this will be new information um, for many of our people. This is the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, CCCU. And it is um, a collaboration of the evangelical schools across the country. I think there are 197 members at this point. And um, these are institutions that require their employees to sign a faith statement. Um, they have to have at least one liberal arts major. Um, so they're, you know, they're evangelical institutions that are collaborating on all kinds of issues and um, working together. So these, this is kind of in Christian higher ed, for those that don't know, is, is it's a kind of a, a consortium of Christian colleges. And this is where many of the Christian college administrators and faculty will take seminars. There's an annual conference. There's resources. And this is the place where you go to... Um, get resourced on being in academia, you know, in Christian higher ed. And we, as you can see right here by topic, anti-racism education is a resource center on, on the website. And you can look up allyship, advocacy. Um, these are all ideas that come out of, we might call the academic more critical theory rooted approach um, to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So people can go on there and look for that, click on campus websites there, Bob. And you can look up schools and see what they have to say about racial and ethnic diversity. And you can see if they have a, it, what their public statements are. Now, what I've experienced in looking at public statements um, from various universities, and I'm going to use Biola as an example, simply because it's the one that I have the most data on. It's the one I've researched the most, is that oftentimes the statements are so general that hardly anybody could disagree with it. Like Biola's statement on unity and diversity is a very fine statement that the public statement on their website is biblically sound. It's, it's, it, it's solid. It's well-documented. I can tell that it was written with a level of theological sophistication. Um, and it's a good statement, but my question for you, Joy, is what happens behind the scenes in terms of how these statements are actually implemented because what parents won't see is the policies 
that are built in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yes, those policies are going to be, they're going to be built. Um, usually now we've transitioned from from our recent student development graduate, and, and we have now also professionalized the role at our institutions. So that is another difference that is very big in the last few years. Our institutions are hiring uh, usually older African-American men, often from pastoral backgrounds, and um, they're, uh, they're listening to these, um, these people give input and provide perspective on how to carry out these mission statements, these large broad statements, and, and give input on what needs to be done to make sure that they're reaching the mission of putting forward justice and loving mercy and those things that come straight out of scripture. Is it your experience, because this is my experience and I'm just wondering, you know, this, this isn't necessarily a question we talked about ahead of time, but I'm curious of your thoughts about it is that what I find is that schools use these generic public statements, but then you don't have any knowledge of how that filters into how they hire people or what sorts of HR trainings that they make their faculty attend or what kinds of book clubs they make their faculty, what kinds of books they make their faculty read. Mm -hmm. Um, I was talking recently to a faculty member at a prominent Christian university and they had all the faculty read uh, Kendi's how to be an anti-racist, not for it's, you know, to like, how do we respond to this from a biblical point of view It is more like, no, this informs our policies and we want you to understand this is, is that your experience as well and what you've seen? I think it's very common right now for our institutions to be requiring a book related to this topic that all their faculty and administrators will read. Um, there tends to be cycles in Christian higher education about things that are very important. In the early 2000s, we all read in every training for multiple years about worldviews. And so we read James Sire and we read Mark Cosgrove and, and those authors on worldviews. And right now, the required book of the year is often something related to diversity or expansion of um, perspective and, and different cultures and how we can come to the table in conversations, uh, those kinds of things. That's, that's what we're all reading right now. Interesting. So when we step back and we think about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, from what you've seen, do you see any connection to critical theory or critical race theory? Like, or is that, or are these two separate streams or are they connected streams? How do you see that? Certainly CRT is one social science framework built out of Marxist thinking. And I, 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 what I see is institutions downplaying that and saying, it's just one social science framework. It doesn't cover everything and it doesn't mean that we need to throw it all out. It's just one framework, one way of looking at the world. Uh, DEI being the overarching terminology of trying to address the community needs and the issues that exist. 
it's kind of similar to after the Enron scandal, there was significant push across all the industries on ethics, training in ethics and case studies for applicants and, and those kinds of things. So it's, it's similar here where this is the big push. This is the big thing that everybody is talking about. But DEI just cannot be the goal on, on its own. Uh, Dr. John Swinton from the University of Aberdeen says that inclusion is a forced coming together. And if that's what we're trying to do as Christians, it's it's not enough. We need to create that place of belonging, and that can't happen without love, because love prompts us to see the changes that are necessary to help um, others belong with us. And if belonging is the goal, then that's what we have to be striving for, uh, which is greater and, and more important than DEI. Uh, just like the Center for Biblical Unity acknowledges that there are issues that need to be addressed and there's personal reflection that needs to get at that sin root. There are things that we need to be discussing in Christian higher education, and um, these are some ways that it's just happening right now. Yeah, that's really good because I think that what I what I think I see is that critical theory kind of I know that people feel like it's brand new because most normal people have never heard of it until like a year and a half ago. But it's really a framework that's been around for a few decades. And, you know, maybe the late 80s would be the formal start of it with Kimberly Crenshaw and that sort of thing, preceded by critical legal studies in the late 70s. Um, but, but really when we think about these, these ideas, the way I see it is that critical theory and the critical social theories, critical race theory is kind of the academic framework that stands behind what is now become DEI. It's, it's like the, if we were to take a step back, this is the, the unspoken framework that's behind what diversity, equity, and inclusion has become, and especially in higher education, including Christian higher education. Um, and so it's kind of the practical outworking of those principles where DEI creates the value system and it, it begins to shape the policies. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about, about that. Like, am I on the right track there? With, with how those two ideas are connected? I think so. Uh, but I do think what Christian higher ed administrators and, and presidents would say is that you can take the CRT foundation out and put the Bible in there and, and prop it up on the, a biblical foundation. They would, they would want to say that it's not related to, it's not propped on CRT that it is existing on scripture, the scripture of loving your neighbor and caring for your neighbor, caring for your community. These are the things that are value driven and mission central for these institutions. That's super helpful. And I think that that rings true for me in the conversations that I've had um, with the administrators at Biola, like for them, they, and again, I'm only using Biola because I'm, I'm not trying to pick on them. It's just that that's the institution that I have the most experience in having, collecting direct data from face-to-face -face conversations with people 
in, in administration, people who are shaping the policies. Um, and I'm just using them as a, as a, as a test case, but I think that, that for many of them that that's how it came in was really a desire of like, how do we love our neighbor? Um, how do we, how do we, uh, make our, our university more, um, kind of culturally open and available for, um, oh, Monique just booked Beckett Cook for the show. I just got an alert. We'll see what that is. Um, so I think, um, you know, that the, the heart behind it, and I, I just really appreciate you bringing this out, it comes from a good place. I know that when Monique was at Biola, there were a lot of struggles that she had as an African-American. She felt like mm-hmm. they couldn't um, participate in chapels, for example, and play uh, gospel, black gospel music in chapel. Like this is, you know, can we just have like one or two chapels a year where we, we do something from a different cultural standpoint. Um, and those felt like situations where she felt culturally excluded, like actively mm-hmm. excluded from the larger life of the school. And I, so I think that the correction to that is, is, was, you know, coming from a good place of how can we create an environment that is more culturally available because the body of Christ is diverse. But what that's become is something else entirely where it has, I think, in almost a bait and switch kind of a way, become importing this secular framework and then kind of baptizing it with a few Bible verses. But maybe I'm being too uncharitable. I, I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about that? No, I was thinking, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, it, it has come from a place of self-examination and institutional examination saying we are not in the right place. We are not serving a, a, a diverse population. We need to look different. We, and, and if we're going to look different from the enrollment perspective, which we talked about at the beginning, that means we have to do some other things to support the fact that we will look different. And so it has been done to try to create that sense of belonging. And what we've done is bring in a Trojan horse. As much as we thought in the early 2000s that the discussion across campuses on Christian worldview would allow us to be watching for what's coming through, somehow this came through, right? I mean, within 10 years of our big industry push on Christian worldview and recognizing worldview, um, we allowed this worldview to come right in. What a fascinating um, insight. And and that's so helpful. I'm wondering, like, if we could talk about some specifics related to DEI that shape hiring practices when it comes to administration and faculty. This is a topic that I've talked to multiple people about in Christian higher ed. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about it as well. Like, how does DEI affect candidate screening? Like you, you, you have, you post for an open position, um, you get all the applications in, but you don't, you don't interview all those applicants. You only interview a few applicants that you think are the most, that most closely resemble the type of person 
that you want to hire. And I'm wondering, like, who are those ideal candidates that kind of come to the top um, and do DEI principles ever shape that? Yes, uh, because very few faith-based institutions have had doctoral programs in the past. Now, they're, they're becoming more and more common now. But, it, you know, even, even 20 years ago, the majority of our Christian faculty attended and graduated secular institutions because that's where the doctoral programs were. And so that allowed us to have uh, this transition of people who maybe did their undergraduate at a Christian institution or they're strong Christians, um, but their, their understanding in academics has come from a secular perspective without any intentionality of how faith might inform it or the Bible might be integrated into their discipline. And so it's transitioned our institutions to look more like secular institutions with this dividing piece between what we study in a secular way and our, our understanding of scripture. They, they haven't been well connected in American higher education. Now, I want to I want to bring out some things that you've said there just to make sure that it doesn't blow by our listeners, because it's super important. And um, you're saying exactly what I've heard from other administrators. So what people have to understand is that the prized candidates like when I was in graduate school and a long time ago, people uh, 30 years, um, the the there were not a lot of programs where you could get a PhD in theology from a Christian evangelical seminary. Um, I think there was maybe one or two. It was like Trinity and Dallas. Um, and so if I wanted to get a PhD in theology, my mentor at Talbot told me, here's what you got to do. You're going you're gonna to get your master's degree at Talbot, and then you're going to go apply at a secular school where they have like a PhD in religion, or um, in Europe, you're going to go to the University of Aberdeen and get a PhD in, in theology. So the prize was to go get a PhD at a secular university. And I would be seen as a prize candidate to come back to Talbot because I was a woman and well, I am a woman and, and that uh, I, I went to Talbot. So I understood the institution. I loved the institution. I wanted to come back and, and, and contribute to it. And that um, I hopefully by the end of my doctorate would remain theologically conservative and so that they would want to have me back. And so that was actually the grand plan for my life was when I was 25, I was approached by my mentor at Talbot and said, here's the plan. Here's what you should do. You can write your ticket for the rest of your life and get a tenured position here at the school if you follow these steps. And that's what I plan to do. Thankfully, God had a different plan. And he sent me Emily, the wonderful child that I got to have. And, and that was a much better plan. Family was a much better plan than my, my PhD. But, but that was the plan. And, and that was really um, very common you know, 25 years ago was educate the, the, the candidate and in, uh, encourage bright prospects, especially if they were women or minorities 
to go on to get a graduate degree, preferably a PhD, and come back. And those PhDs would be done at secular universities. And so now we have a situation where we have Christian higher ed populated by a lot of these people. And a lot of these people now have been promoted into positions of leadership and administration responsibilities. And what your point is, Joy, like they didn't always have the best integration of their faith with their academic discipline. You know, they might've had Mm -hmm. some undergrad training. Maybe if they went to seminary, they had a little bit of graduate training, Um, but they often went on to these secular institutions and were educated through the lens oftentimes of critical theory. If they were going into, into especially particular fields, like psychology, sociology, social science, um, law, and and that sort of a thing. Do do I have that generally correct? Yes, absolutely. And even today, we do have more doctoral programs, but they're mostly in theology, leadership, education. Um, So most people who are going to get a PhD or a doctorate are going to do that at a secular institution and then come back. That was yeah. my plan in life too. I, oh. when I, 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 the first institution I worked at, I also was an undergrad graduate of it. And so my plan was to go get some experience at another, at other institutions and, you know, broaden my world and then go back to my original institution and finish my career there. Yeah. And that's very similar to how I was advised as well. So now um, when we think about recruiting um, what are the, the factors that come in as faculty are recruited into a Christian higher ed context? Like what are the things that make an application really start to stand out? Who are the people that are going to get those interviews? So it's definitely a, a practice of trying to generate interest from diverse populations. Um, so that's going to be very important. and. Um, making sure that we have representation not only at the applicant level, but also at the interview level, because there is research that, uh, say, African-Americans or women will not be interviewed as much with uh, for positions. And so it's not only can we can we get a diversity of applications, but then from that application pool, stratifying to make sure that we're interviewing um, from the various um, populations that are being represented. Now, a, yeah, I want you to talk about administrative positions too in a minute, because that's a little bit different recruiting, but I want to camp out on faculty recruiting a little bit longer and, and mm-hmm. share um, a couple of things that I've learned as a result of interviews that I've done with, with people who have done hiring in Christian higher ed. And um, more than one person has, has reported to me, and these are department chair level people that are part of actively interviewing and screening candidates that if the provost in charge, who is the academic chair's boss, um, the provost also can weigh in. So let's say an academic chair wants to hire a new professor. So the applications start coming in. 
And the department chair says, well, these are the applicants that are the most qualified. Like this person has a PhD in this area. They have expertise in this issue that I want to hire for. They've taught at three other institutions. Um, They have these such and such academic papers that have published or a book that has been published. These are the people that I want to interview. Well, the provost can come along and override that and say, no, you're only going to interview women or minorities or minority women. And it won't be based necessarily on the merit. It will it will be about other criteria that are more heavily weighted sometimes. Now, that's not always the case, but I've had multiple faculty department chairs tell me that that has been their experience. And so that's telling me that's at least happening some of the time. And I think that what we have to understand is that there is a a prized candidate of looking for people with certain minority status that, um, you know, I think that that that's a person that's looked upon oftentimes in higher ed as being, you know, a more desirable candidate. Um, And that's a difficult conversation. But I think that you don't know what goes into hiring and screening people a lot of the time. Like when you're just applying for a job, you don't know what, why you got the call for the interview. But it's, I saw this. I mean, I was, I was told very explicitly I was being approached because I was a woman. And they needed woman faculty in the theology department. And the, the accreditation people were putting pressure on them about it. So this does happen from t- at least from time to time. So, yes, there is, a, if you think about it as a balanced scorecard for hiring, uh, yes, there is priority given for those who will help move forward the diversity of hires. You know, the the thing about Christian higher education is that at many of our institutions, the diversity of an enrollment has definitely grown. It has, they, they have done what they've set out to do, which is bring in a more diverse student population. Faculty population doesn't turn over that quickly. And so our faculty diversity is lagging far behind our student diversity, because faculty stay for a while. And so when you have that opportunity to hire, you do have to hire a minority if you have someone who is qualified. That, that is an important part of making sure that the, the university continues to grow in diversity and moves forward into the next 10 years. I think another issue they're asking in the chat box about, you know, well, you know, theoretically someone could get a PhD in a secular institution, but still remain theologically conservative. And uh, Candy, thank you for that comment. I'm not too worried they get PhDs in secular schools. My issue is the vetting when they apply to Christian universities afterward. Now, in some of the conversations I've had with people who are involved in hiring, They've told me that often the the hiring conversation goes something along the lines of asking the candidate about their personal testimony. You know, can you sign the statement of faith? Um, Maybe do you attend a church? 
but often very little is asked about integrative questions like an integrative an example of an integrative question might be um how when you are working on your dissertation what's an area in your academic discipline that you found to be in contradiction to the Christian worldview? And how did you begin to tackle that? Uh, how did you um, deal with that, wrestle with that? That would be a question I would want to know in bringing the person on to know that they've engaged in some critical thinking in their doctoral program. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, how people are screened in, in terms of, the actual, like when you're in the room interviewing people. Yes, it's definitely going to be the, the faith, the personal faith testimony. Um, and then it's usually going to be a question about faith and integration, but it's going to be worded in a very general term, like how does faith inform your discipline? Now, okay. basically, if you've read your Bible at all or gone to any sermons, there should be something that you can say about it, but that's not the same thing as having what you describe as a critical thinking mentality about your discipline as informed by theology. Yeah, I mean, I could see the, the, the cynic in me would say, yeah, I could get almost any Christian faculty in the room and interview them and they could give me some some answer about loving your neighbor. And, you know, that would in a broad way count as integration, but, um, that's not really what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yes. So. And the, the piece about faith and learning integration is a significant piece. It's not only part of applications, but it's also part of promotion packages and tenure applications. Um, it is, that is probably the most common essay that a faculty member at a Christian institution is going to have to write. Okay. All right, well, let's talk about recruiting now for administrative positions, because that is a little bit different kind of a process. Yes. So for administrative positions, and by this, I mean presidents and vice presidents, um, they are often um, recruited through a headhunting company. So there's one company in particular that's very common in faith-based institutions those will send out say eight to 12 page profiles for these executive level positions. These profiles aren't publicly available. Um, they're sent by email to anyone who is in Christian higher education um, who might seem qualified or has been contacted in the past. So it, it's private distribution list. Uh, to prepare for this interview, I reviewed everything that I've received from this company in 2021 and it was nine executive positions, uh, several presidents, uh, vice president for academics, for advancement and for enrollment. And all of them address some aspect of community related to diversity, um, equity and inclusion, but in very general ways, um, there's a brethren related denomination that says ensures student safety and welfare and a sensitivity to issues related to campus culture. Um, there's a there's a non-denominational president position had three priorities described academic financial leadership and then a, a paragraph on cultural and intercultural engagement so all of these profiles going out are addressing 
what the institution is seeking in leaders at this level. That's really helpful. I think um, when we think about those positions too, from what I understand, you know, presidents and, and provosts often are a reflection of the board and the values of the board. And I'm thinking that in most cases, at least in the cases that I've looked into, the the board is the president's boss. Like that's that's the person who can fire the president is usually the yes. board. Mm-hmm. And so if the president doesn't have the backing of the board, that can also lead to a, a divided vision, you know, so the it really depends on who's on your board. Like that's a, another big factor in all of this is because the board helps to hire these these high level positions. And so if the board becomes predominantly controlled by people who value these DEI principles and implementing them, then they're going to hire a president and a provost who value those things as well. And they're, they're kind of the implementation arm of bringing those principles from the top down. And if the board feels like the president's going rogue (laughs) and not doing that, they can get rid of the president. It, It is, is, is that generally how that works? Do I have that right? Yes, the president does report to the board. And um, so the board is setting policy. It's usually an executive committee of the board that would okay. that would be doing interviews of the president. And then often the presidential search is chaired by a member of the board. Mm-hmm. So when parents are trying to vet a Christian college, it's it's hard because you and I have talked a lot of insider things. We've we've kind of pulled back the curtain on a lot of a lot of things that regular people don't know about how the academic world works. And I think that that's really important. And so as an outsider as a parent, um when I didn't know these things, you know, I'm like I don't know what's happening at the university. I don't know what the culture is. I don't know what HR trainings they're having people go through. I don't know what books they're having them read. So kind of as a basic first step, I always tell parents, go on the website and read the statement of faith. I was shocked at how many Christian colleges have such a minimal statement of faith. Like if if your statement of faith is a paragraph I'm I'm telling parents like move on. Like that's that's not a school that's it's really probably um having their key theological principles being deeply embedded in the culture. But um what if they want to go deeper? You know, what could a parent do to really start vetting a school to go beyond the the public statements of God first and, you know, this kind of a thing. How do we, how do we pull back that curtain a little bit? Yes. So the application forms are usually available online. Uh, They're usually under HR, you know, human resources or under jobs or something like that. And through that, you can usually read the statements that applicants are asked to write 
or faith statements that they have to affirm or lifestyle statements they have to agree to. A few institutions, now this is the minority, but a few institutions have publicly viewable faculty handbooks, which might expand on faculty lifestyle expectations or formal statements on theologies or issues. Is that something a parent could ever request? I, I wouldn't see why not. Yes. Doesn't hurt to ask. All right, Does, go ahead. Doesn't hurt to ask, yes. <laughs> go ahead, yeah. Uh, many institutions will hold faculty hiring at such an important level that it will go all the way to the provost. We've, we've talked about the provost yeah. position a bit earlier, that's the chief academic officer, sometimes called um, the vice president for academic affairs. And uh, so, so usually that person will, will interview every faculty member to make sure that the mission and identity of the institution is being maintained. That's very common for it to be a, a level of a, the interview committee and then perhaps the dean and then the provost. And I don't... Yeah, I th but I think just if I could say like something really quick about the importance of the provost is I did a little deep dive on, you know, even like the dissertation of provosts. Um, you can sometimes get those uh, if you know where to look and who to ask. And if you know somebody in a doctoral program, they usually have access to libraries that aren't um, available to regular people. But um, you can get those dissertations and you can read them. And that's very enlightening. Um, I think that it often gives you a perspective of what that person worked through in their doctoral program, what their point of view is. And you can at least start to think about the question. I wonder how this influences these values influence how they hire people. So sometimes that's that that's like extra credit. But that's yes. that's how. um much of a deep dive I was doing and when we were trying to vet schools for our, our younger daughter, so. Yes, the provost position is just so important. The provost is the one who really handles the internal workings of the institution, whereas the president is a little bit more outward for facing. So the provost does set the, the perspective of the institution in many ways. So I don't think the issues of theology on diversity perspective would be raised in a vetting process at all, uh, it, unless the institution was deliberately seeking those with a strong CRT perspective. Um, otherwise, the topic isn't going to be raised. I, I can't foresee any situation in which it would be discussed at all. As part of the hiring. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that adjuncts sometimes even have a lower threshold when when getting hired at um, institutions when I've been hired as adjunct sometimes that was a different application process and a little bit lower standard of interviewing and, and um, vetting and that sort of thing but mm -hmm. what I did is also um, looking at faculty pages um, often faculty pages are available publicly. And so I went and looked up like the department chair for the major for that my daughter was interested in. And lo and behold, there was his curriculum vitae. And so I downloaded that and read through his curriculum vitae. 
And um, that gave me some insight into papers he's published, books he's published. Um, people might not know what a curriculum vitae is. Maybe you should explain that. You're the, you're the professional. <laughs> Yeah, so curriculum vitae is essentially a resume with the education listed first. So it, in higher education, that's what we, we call it, a CV. And these are often made available publicly. Those that are public are usually a little bit shorter and they might focus the presentations and publications on that which is most recent or those that are most relevant to current teaching. Um, there are ways to get some access to articles or dissertations. Obviously, if you know someone who is a faculty member or a doctoral student or something like that, yes, academic library access is a great thing. Um, but there's there are also a couple of websites, um, academia.edu okay. or researchgate.net. Both of those allow a faculty member to, to create a profile and then post papers that they have written, and it also allows um, people to request that the author give them a copy of the paper if they want to read it, and often they will because they, they want to provide people with their research and their writings. So what I did for one faculty member that I was looking into um, who came to my attention, I went and looked at his faculty page, and then I downloaded his curriculum vitae, and I see like 20 papers related to critical theory and gender theory. And so I'm like, okay, well, this is, this tells me a lot about what this guy is up to. He was a theology faculty member at a top five Christian university. So I'm like, well, okay. So no wonder he's calling the Holy spirit a she. Um, and so look at all of his academic papers. And then I'm thinking, and he has tenure. So that tells me where the school is at of what they think is on the acceptable spectrum of acceptable beliefs that they think are in alignment with their statement of faith. So, but at that point you're like, you, you need almost like next level detective skills. Like we, my Alicia Moss is saying in the, in the comments, she says, maybe I'll just homeschool or Allison said, maybe I'll just homeschool my children for college too. <laughs> <laughs> so complicated. I, I know it is. And and I, I felt like I was losing my mind when I was trying to research all of this. But these are the literal steps that I have done to try to understand what's going on. Um, I've also found LinkedIn to be an interesting resource. Um, what are your thoughts about using that? Yes, LinkedIn is a professional networking site. And it will allow you to review the education or the publications that a faculty member has put out, as well as groups that the faculty member has publicly chosen to be affiliated with. Uh, the big new thing right now is that uh, LinkedIn added a learning element. And so this, this LinkedIn learning will allow you to do online trainings, which will culminate in a certificate or badge that you can post on your profile. And so you can see what faculty are publicizing as their recent learning. There are so many LinkedIn learning diversity certification courses that are available right now and that faculty are watching and posting as a badge that they understand this aspect of diversity or equity or inclusion. Yeah, and, and that's been my experience too. There was a, a an administrator at Biola who 
um, worked in student life and she had those badges on her, on her page. And she was constantly sharing, liking, reposting um, posts from what I would consider fairly scary leftist inclusion trainings. Um, and I thought, wow, this, this person is, it's a public page. I'm not violating anybody's privacy by looking at this. And these are the things that she is actively sharing. And she has her, her, her position listed right there that she's at Biola university. And so I thought, oh, this is, this is really interesting. Um, now, another thing that I kind of stumbled onto is looking at whether or not a Christian college has an actual department of diversity or equity. Um, if they have a chief diversity officer or a VP of diversity versus those institutions that haven't yet developed um, and, and invested resources in that. I think, for example, Biola has a chief diversity officer. I think they have about five full-time people in their diversity um, office. So they've, they've made a sizable yearly investment into these things. And you can see that right on the, the public Biola website. And so that's something to look for on a school's page is what are they investing along those lines? Have you found that schools that don't yet have those offices tend to be less, um, have these policies a little bit less embedded? I think so. And of course, this is my personal experience and opinion. Yeah. But I think so. I think I think a lot of institutions are more likely to use terminology like intercultural engagement or reconciliation. Or what about cultural competency? That's what I'm yes. hearing more and more. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they'll use that terminology, which is a little bit softer and a little bit more focused on the on the theology and on the sense of belonging and not so much on the common cultural expectations of DEI. Yeah. What are some other resources that parents might be able to look at on a website? And I want to encourage parents, like, don't just use the search engine on the school page. Go use Google and type in the school's name and then look for office of diversity or whatever. And because sometimes it's not super apparent, like right up front where it is. But what are some other resources parents might look for? I would encourage some looking around on the library's website because the libraries often have newsletters or website highlights. And, and some of the things that they'll put in here are new books or resources that they've gotten access to, um, monthly recommended books. They also have research guides on certain topics. I've seen them on the topics of racial reconciliation. So they have a whole uh, recommended research guide on these topics. And then also if they do anything with administrator or faculty interviews, they'll often ask them, what are you reading? And, you know, or what's on the faculty bookshelf and they'll get faculty perspectives on what they're reading. And right now, often that is books related to diversity because the faculty want to show that they're keeping up with the cultural times and what's being talked about and what's being um, uh, put forward as important. Also I think chapel services. Yeah, that was what that. I was going to mention too, mm -hmm. is chapel services. I found those to be very uh, illustrative and revealing, um, especially if you go back to fall of 2020. 
um, right mm-hmm. after all the social unrest, look at those chapels. And if they're not publicly available, ask the admissions person for links to the, the chapels because sometimes they're on a, a secret page. But yes. that really can reveal to you how the school is positioning the messaging to the students. Yes. News releases, so certainly look up last summer and see if there were positional statements that were being made. But there's also news releases about guest speakers that are being highlighted or trainings or programs or events that are being highlighted and written about on social media or in formal news releases. Yeah, that's really good. Another thing I did was I, I would look at the school's official social media from the summer of 2020 to see what they were promoting, you know, Point Loma uh, Nazarene college was, uh, or university was promoting, you know, telling students to, to make donations to black lives matter, to financially support them. And I thought, that's interesting. That, that tells me something about what kind of culture they're trying to build at Point Loma. Um, I think, you know, again, if you're talking as a parent to the admissions people, asking them a general question, like, do you teach CRT? That's probably not going to work. You're going to have to be a little smarter about your inquiry and your detective work. Um, What my husband and I found was we would have to talk to the admissions person and then we would have to request a second meeting with whoever oversees the school's diversity plan. And this mm-hmm. it, it took a lot of time um, when we were going through this, this process earlier in the year. But then we, we had to have some pretty direct conversations with that person about what they were doing. And, and I kind of tried to position it so that I was actually for diversity. So they would tell me the truth. Um, and but that was kind of a, a workaround that that I did. Um, but I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about like how to get past like the glossy presentations there with the admissions department. Yes, most employees are not going to know what CRT is. And no, they don't. They do, <laughs> they're going to answer no, it's yeah. not taught because they legitimately don't see the connection between CRT and what they're teaching or, or putting forth in the chapels or student development programming, uh, because what they are teaching, they believe comes from the Bible. You know, God wants us to love and he commands us to seek justice and love mercy. And so that's, they they wouldn't say that they're teaching CRT. I I don't think there's any one person to talk to besides, as you're saying, ask to talk to whoever oversees the the diversity plan. Um, It really is this catch 22. If you show your hand, they're gonna use softer terminology. But if you are a little bit more subtle with it in, in asking general questions, you can get some better feedback. So some questions that I would recommend is what diversity training does student development or the spiritual life offer? Uh, what curriculum is used for that? What books do you recommend students to learn uh, about in engaging with others? Uh, ask about events on campus that are held to celebrate com- the community and members of the community. Uh, what guest speakers have been brought to chapel recently who have addressed cultural issues. Boy, those are all great questions. I'm going to make sure Allison gets all those in the show notes. Those will be really helpful to parents. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just ways that they help students engage in difficult cultural issues or in difficult conversations. 
um, because these happen and they have to train their resident assistants and resident directors on, on how to, to guide these conversations. And so they, they will have some kind of training or you know, bullet points on how to help students engage in, in cultural issues and difficult conversations. Very good. That's super helpful. Very practical. Um, so as we're thinking about these issues, I think, you know, one thing that, you know, a lot of people are probably going to come away from this conversation with is that uh, this is going to take some homework. You know, this is this is not going to be an easy process. And um, again, my hope, and I'm going to keep saying this and, and praying into this, that there will be some Christian college presidents who will come out and take a stand um, for historic Christianity and, and a vision for diversity that is truly biblical and, and, and that there can be some alternatives uh, and, you know, I'm praying for that. I'm praying into that. And that would be a wonderful situation where there could be more competition. But right now we want parents to be educated about these, the current reality that many of our Christian colleges are in. There was a great question on Facebook of, um, what do you see for the future, um, you know, at the top, what will the next 10 years bring? What is the next trend that you see that is stewing in academia right now? I have a couple thoughts, but I'm wondering what you see. Yeah, this is, this is such an important issue. And I think because our students have been so formed by the issues of George Floyd and you know the the conflicts within our country I think that that is going to influence the the level of empathy that our students have when they're coming in I think it will it will help our students focus even more on missions and on reaching out and on on perspective taking and seeing others but it also means that we have to guide them carefully and we have to do that from a biblical perspective. We just have to, there's no choice. And our God is a big God. He can take care of those things. He can do miracles in changing people's hearts and perspectives. We need his, his light to shine in our minds in Christian higher education. Boy, that's such a much more sanctified thought than the one I was having. Um, so, I mean, I like that because what you're calling our attention to is, is what could happen if Christian colleges um, were to really get a biblical vision for these things, they could harness that empathy in the emerging generation um, to mobilize for missions and evangelism. Troublingly, 50% of Christian millennials think that evangelism is a form of colonization so, you know, and the millennials are who are in our Christian higher ed now. So, you know, that's going to be a challenge, but we need some, some presidents with some commitment and some vision and some leadership and some backbone to steer our, our colleges back to being, I think, historically faithful. I think the, um, 
the 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 cynic in me uh, thinks that where this is heading in the broader culture, I actually think DEI is going to go away, and I think it's going to be replaced with equity and anti-racism trainings. I think it's going to start being recast as just being equity and anti-racism, and that will it will be the next frontier for education and reshaping education because educational equity is becoming quickly kind of the guiding principle for our public education systems. And I think that that's where um, at least some Christian colleges are going to go. And based on the CCU website that we looked at earlier, they're already engaging in the anti-racism conversation I don't know. What are your thoughts about my theory? I'm full of theories, so I won't be offended if you th- think I'm totally wrong. But no, I can definitely see that as the as the next piece. Uh, it, and it just convicts me even more to be more open, more speaking out, more engaged in in the theology that intersects with my discipline. Um, because that's the only way that we're going to make a difference is to, to bring the Bible into our disciplines and to show a different way. We need the Holy Spirit. We need him to help us be, be faithful in the moment that he has given to us. Yeah. Thank you, Joy, for doing this with me. This has been a super helpful conversation. <clears throat> there was a comment on a YouTube from a principal uh, Christian, no, Christian high school guidance counselor, Jenny, says it's getting very challenging to uh, help students and parents figure these things out. She's very appreciative for the, the conversation. So this is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it, it, hopefully this will get people thinking and and understanding sort of the inner workings of higher ed, Christian higher ed. It is its own culture. It is. It ha- definitely has its own value system and its own kind of way of being. But Joy has done a really great job pulling back that curtain for us tonight in a very systematic and careful and compassionate way. Um, any final words you want to leave our, our friends with tonight? I still believe in Christian higher education. And there is a spectrum of, of people at every, at every campus there are those who might be for this uh, fully and wholeheartedly, and there might be others who are um, just completely embedded into the Bible and into theology from a historic Christian perspective. So don't give up on Christian higher education. I, I still think that it is a wonderful opportunity to help transition the students that God has gifted you in a way that will help make them ready for the the impact that they're going to have on the world. I think you're a little more optimistic than I am. So I'm glad that you're here to counterbalance me because I have to tell you that I've talked to so many students who have been deeply damaged by their, the, the culture, the student life and um, at, at Christian college because of these ideologies that are, embedded into the residence life and the the chapels and the student life. I absolutely believe in theory in Christian higher ed, but it's hard for me to promote it anymore. And it's so hard for me to even say that 
because I've spent my whole adult life um, encouraging Christian higher ed. But I, I've really in the last year come to a place of struggle and just being really honest and candid. I've, I've been in a place of struggle of like, I don't know if this is worth it anymore, but I like it that, that you're in the fight and I like it that you're there. And I want to thank everybody who's in Christian higher ed, who is biblically faithful. I want to encourage you to speak out more, um, do, you know, whatever we can do to continue the conversation. Um, you know, I'm up for it. Let's keep talking. And I love it that you're a little bit more optimistic than me because that, that helps me not circle the drain quite so much because it has been a painful um, awakening for me the last 18 months. That is for sure. Well, I do think that the action item is that parents can't simply say, I got them to this point and I entrust them to you now. I think what it calls us to as parents is to continue that step and that walk along with our student when they're encountering these things at the Christian college, they are going to encounter these things at the Christian college and they need our support and our guidance in a way that they haven't needed, you know, students haven't needed in the past. So um, prayers for the parents who are helping them walk through this time. Very good. Thank you so much. And it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Joy. I really appreciate you being here. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, friends. I was, I was rough, but it was so good. It's just rough on my heart, like to be transparent about, about what we've been going through as a family, but I love Joy's message. I love her optimism and that she's in the fight. Aren't you glad for people like that, that are in the fight? Like they're still in it. Um, and people that are trying to make a difference. I'm so grateful for, for that. All right. I was just looking through the comments there. Um, Alicia Moss was talking about, um, possibly uh, online undergraduate work in, uh, yeah, just scroll down a little bit. There it is. Um, less influence from the crowd and the faculty by staying home. I guess you have to weigh your purpose for school. Is it the degree or is it the college experience? You know, that's a very real consideration. Um, I think another way of thinking about it is, you know, your own child's development, their maturity, where are they at? Um, You know, maybe there's benefit to them. And I can't believe I'm saying this because I've always been such an advocate for um, kids leaving the house and, and going and being on their own, because that's how I did it. But, you know, these days, um, there might be wisdom in keeping your kids at home and continuing to disciple them as they go to college, at least for like the first year or two, and helping them begin to to ground, you know, and, and you can keep an eye on them and interact with them on worldview issues and continuing to disciple them. I, I, I've seen that done a few times and and. I could see real wisdom to that. Um, I think that looking at the purpose of the college education has kind of changed. Um, you know, there's some fields where that's required. If you're going to be a teacher, lawyer, doctor, you, you got to go. You, you have to get that education. But if, you're, if your child's thinking like they're, they want to, they're not really sure what they want to do, or they want to go get like a generic communications degree or business degree, 
there might be wisdom in having them get some life skills first and going in the workplace, getting giving them more time to mature and grow in their faith before going to college, maybe doing a gap year program like Impact 360. There's a lot. I think we just have to not get so locked into like there's only one path, you know, and maybe trade school is an option for for some people. Um, I think that this is just a conversation that we're going to have to really work with our kids on, on where they're at in their emotional, spiritual development, as well as their life goals. You know, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a more, um, it's a conversation with a lot more sides and dimensions to it now. And I think that there's, I've really appreciated Abby, our younger daughter stayed home for a gap semester um, this fall. And I'm, deeply appreciative for that, that we were able to continue, um, in that conversation with her, um, into adulthood. So, uh, there's pros and cons either way, but there's, there's just a lot of discussions for parents to have together. All right, my friends, I think that wraps it up. Monique will be back, uh, next week for our season finale of the show. It'll be our last show of the year. And, uh, we will look forward to seeing you then for one last family party. <laughs> so we will see you next week. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.